right, take your Bibles this morning. Let's turn to the book of John. Thank you very much. Certainly prepared our hearts for the word this morning. We're going to continue in the book of John this morning. And I suppose this message wants to be an overview of the prologue of John, which is chapters... 1, verses 1 through about 18. It also may, may want to be an exegesis or an exposition of the first maybe three verses of this book. And it also serves to tie in uh, an element really throughout the entirety of John. So we're going to try to accomplish all three of those tasks this morning. And so to do that, I want to ask this question for us. Why, and I believe this might be a good question to ask as we're reading through the first chapter of John, why do you believe in Jesus' words? Why do you believe in Jesus' words? I think there's a clear answer to that here. In these verses, perhaps maybe someone has even verbalized that question to you. Why do you believe in this Jesus of yours? Why do you believe in the Bible? How can you trust God's word? I want to submit that as we look here for the next 40 or so minutes, that we're going to get a profound answer. A simple one, yes but a profound one for those who, as Pastor Mike has already said, claim the name of Christ by calling themselves Christians. So we're in the book of John, and John introduces Jesus in a very different way than the other Gospels. In fact, the other Gospels are called the Synoptic Gospels, right? Because they have a lot more similarities than the oddball John. But there's always... Lessons to be learned in the oddballs, isn't there? We've learned lessons from the class clowns of our school. We've learned lessons from those who are different than us. I'm certainly not calling John a class clown by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, But he is very much different in the way that he introduces his readers to Jesus, isn't he? If you go to Matthew chapter 1, you don't have to this morning, but if you go to Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, Matthew introduces us to Jesus through his genealogy, remember? Going all the way back to King David, and then even further back to that, to Father Abraham. Mark, in verse 1 of his gospel, introduces us to Jesus right away as the Son of God. Certainly has its value. Luke, in chapter 1, verse 5, begins to introduce Jesus to us through the man, the father, Zechariah, and his wife, Elizabeth, and then their son, John, not the gospel writer, but John the Baptist. And so we have, really, an introduction through John the Baptist, and then Luke really dives into uh, Jesus' humanity by giving us the most detailed look at the incarnation, the detailed look of the birth, I should say, of Jesus Christ. But John, however, introduces us to Jesus all the same 
But he does, does so in a very different way, unlike the synoptics. We could use the term foundational for Jesus' uh, introduction here. We could use the word critical, certainly critical to our belief, to the outworking of Christian faith. John uses this term in verse 11 of chapter 1 when he says of Jesus' introduction, he came to his own and those who were his own did not receive him. But, verse 12, but as many as received him, it's as critical, it's as foundational, it's as basic as this to those who were Uh, who received him, to them he gave the right, the right, the authority, the privilege to one, to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. And that's an incredible thought, isn't it? If you believe in Jesus according to what we read in this account of who he is and in the introduction of who Jesus is by John, you have the ability to be called a child of God. That's outstanding. That is life-changing. And so this morning I want us to look at how John introduces Jesus and investigate why John introduces Jesus to us so differently. It's unique in the fact that um, Jesus isn't referred to by name until verse 17. For 16 verses, John introduces Jesus, and he doesn't even say, Jesus Christ. We have to wait until verse 17. If you're going to introduce someone, it's kind of awkward, right? To be standing there with somebody else. I only do that if I forgot the person's name that I'm trying to introduce the other person to. You ever been there? John did not forget Jesus' name. It's kind of awkward, and we're waiting for 16 verses. Who's this? What's his name? John has an emphasis straight away, not on his name, but on time. Verse 1, in the beginning. John has an emphasis on time. It really goes all the way back to creation. Matthew, remember, he goes back to Abraham. Mark, he talks about God as uh, Jesus is God's son, but he really goes back to Isaiah, if you were to read through Mark's introduction. And Luke, as we mentioned, goes all the way back to the person of John the Baptist. But John goes out of his way not only to uh, introduce Jesus in terms of time, but he he introduces Jesus in terms of contrast with, with none other than Luke's pathway to Jesus, John the Baptist. In fact, in verse 8, he says of John the Baptist, he was not the, capital L in most translations, he was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. There's a contrast with Jesus and John the Baptist. And so there's a time element. There's the contrast with John the Baptist. And we see that in verse 15, those two really converge, the time element and the contrast with John the Baptist. And we're just getting our moorings now in the prologue here a little bit. John the Baptist testified, verse 15, about him, that's Jesus, and cried out saying, 
Remember, he's contrasting John and Jesus, and now he's going to add that time element back in of Jesus in the beginning. This, is, this was he of whom I said, so John is saying of Jesus, Jesus who comes after me, right, in terms of birth, right, has in ministry, has a higher rank than I do. Why? Here's the time element. He existed before me. Now, how about that for a riddle, right? Who comes after me but exists before me? Right? Only John the Baptist gets to use that riddle. It's not just a clever riddle, though, is it? That is a profound theological statement of the deity of this one that John the Baptist and John the Gospel writer is pointing to. None other than the God-man himself, Jesus Christ. So why does John not name, John the Gospel writer, why does he not name Jesus until verse 17? Why does he introduce us with a contrast, with the concept of time, and not his name like the others do? Well, in the beginning, verse 1 certainly has a throwback in the Hebrew Bible to the very title of the first book. Right? In fact, when you read in the beginning, you, your mind, right, as a Christian, as someone who knows the Bible, goes as far back as maybe John chapter 1, but it certainly goes all the way back to Genesis, Genesis chapter 1. Those are such clear markers for anyone who knows the Hebrew Scriptures. And then, in case we missed it, what does he do in verse 2? He restates it, right? He was, what? In the beginning. And so there's a time element. It's a function and it's expression of time here. You know, we have timers on our stoves, right? If we want pasta and no one wants really, likes really soggy pasta, right? So we... Usually, I try to remember to put a timer on whatever I'm making pasta, right? And you forget sometimes, and you have to guess, right? Oh, it's been about five minutes, hopefully, right? But that timer is the start of something, right? John tells us that Jesus existed prior to the beginning, prior to the start of something. That's a significant statement, as we said before, it's statement that really qualifies Jesus to be higher rank than anyone, including John the Baptist, because he is God. It's also a clear indication of creation, right? In the beginning, right? In verse 3, all things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. So it's a clear indication of creation. If you go to verse 4 and verse 5, you see elements of creation there. Life, right? And light certainly harkens back all the way to Genesis chapter 1. Let there be light. And so there's certainly the reality of creation here. As John introduces Jesus to us at the beginning. We even have a contrast of, of verbals here. In the beginning was the word. And the word was God, and the word uh, was with God, excuse me, and the word was God. 
then we see the difference in verse 3, right? All things came into being. They weren't, they weren't was. They didn't just exist. They came into being. They needed a start. And by the way, this one who was, right, is the one who started these things. So it certainly speaks to Jesus in terms of his, uh, his deity. In fact, John, I believe, is really referencing later when Jesus says, I am the bread of life. I am the light. I am the resurrection and life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And so there certainly is a clear indication that Jesus is different than anyone else and everyone else. So the identity of Jesus is first this. He's God. That in and of itself, again, is not overly unique to John's gospel. The other gospels record that. Uh, But what is unique about John's gospel is that his message is consumed with this question. Pastor Tim kind of uh, went through this as part of his overview. And that question is, since Jesus is God, what will you do with him? Like in verse 14, is it enough that you just believe that Jesus is God's son? Or in verse 3, is it enough to believe that Jesus is the creator? Or in verse 17, is it enough to believe that the Mosaic law is no longer the basis, the primary basis with relating to God. Or maybe in verse 12, we could go as we've read this already, is it, what does it truly mean to believe in Jesus' name? So we have seen John introduce Jesus as God, utilizing the construct of time and the action or the function of creation as an argument. Now we see John introduced Jesus by another way. And this is really our primary focus. He doesn't refer to Jesus by name. We've already said that. At least the name that we're expecting until verse 17. But he does use a name. Most translations recognize that. In verse 1, in the beginning was, and we're looking for God. We're looking for Jesus. We're looking for the Son of God. But we get what? The Word. And then we get it again. And the Word was with God. And then we get it again. And the Word, this was no mistake. You know, it's interesting that I heard once that if you want to remember somebody's name, you say it three times in a sentence. Have you ever heard that? John just did that. And then he'll do it a fourth time later on in verse 14. John wants us to know Jesus as the Word. And I believe that it is critical not only to the prologue, the overview of the prologue, but really to the reality of the theme of John's whole gospel. There's much uh, subject of interest here with logos. That's the word, word, here in Greek. Uh, It's been observed that in pagan Greek culture, the logos was commonly understood as a generic, rational force behind the universe. It's kind of like karma today, or destiny, or maybe even someone saying, hey, way to blaze your own trail, right? 
But these, my friends, are all foreign concepts to the New Testament. While this word and its thinking, logos, was prevalent in the culture, I think there's probably a much greater influence in John's mind than pagan Greek culture. And that is the Old Testament. You read through the book of the Gospel of John, and you know John knows his Old Testament. And even some of the songs that we sang this morning had all kinds of Old Testament references that relate to the concept of Jesus as the Word, as the Logos. Think about this. Think about verse 1 in the beginning. The fact that John points us right away to creation. What's so significant about creation and the Word? Some of you are recounting the Genesis account. We're not going to turn there this morning, right? Day one, and God, what? Said. And any time God wanted to create, we are told, and God, what? Said. He said it, and it happened. And so there's a very clear power in the word of God. Let there be light, let there be fish, let there be vegetation, and on it goes. No one else can do that. No one else can speak, and it happen unequivocally? From out of nothing, something? Let alone keep promises and always be true and right and accurate and good? Only God can do that. And so we see that it's certainly a powerful motif, if you will, in the Old Testament. God's word is a strong theme throughout. I mean, just think of the prophets, right? The prophets never said, right, Jeremiah, right? <laughs> the one who didn't know what to say. And was always like, oh, man, me, really? He, you know, he was like, you know, Jeremiah says this. Jeremiah's authority here. Isaiah, I'm Isaiah. I'm going to say this to you. What? What do they say? Thus saith, sorry, this is KJV now. What? The Lord. <laughs> Thus saith the Lord. Or the word of the Lord, what? Came to me. It's on that basis. And that basis alone. So, however, it is in John's gospel where we see that the word is now final. It is maybe absolute. It's fully disclosed. You know, Isaiah... After that, we needed more. In fact, Isaiah says that there's more that's going to come and prepare the way. Right. The prophets weren't final. They had an absolute word of God. But there was something more that was necessary. And my friends, as we turn the pages to John's gospel, John is making a clear break from that kind of thinking that we will need more and more and more and more that saith the Lord. No, John is saying, my friends, here it is. It is final. And it is now before us. And that is the word. The Jesus. The Christ. We don't need any more. 
And so for those of us who are looking for more and more, and as we see friends who are looking for more and more and more, John says, no, we have it. We have it final. All that we need. All the revelation that is necessary for one to believe in me. That's what he says. And so Jesus is the absolute communication of God because he is God and demonstrates that what he says we must believe. Jesus is the absolute communication. He demonstrates that he's God. So we could say it another way. Jesus' words demand belief because he is God. Why do you believe Jesus' words this morning? Right? That's the question we're trying to answer. Well, simply put, John says it's because he is God. And what he says is believable. In fact, anything outside of what he says is unbelievable, because it's not reality. And so we've seen that John clearly presents Jesus as God. Uh, and we're going to investigate why John calls Jesus the Word, really, for 17 verses. And so, Jesus' words first demand belief because they are God's words. Said that in so many words already, but this is where we're going to land on point one. And, and really, let's look at verse 14. Right. Jesus' words demand belief because they are God's words. Why do I believe the word of God? Because they're God's words. Why do I believe it's Jesus and his words? It's because they're God's words. And we see here in verse 14, all right, first of all, the picture of this communication. The picture that we have God's words in front of us. There's a living, breathing, touchable, able to be seen, concrete picture of the word of God. Verse 14 says, and the word became flesh. It became flesh. There's many words we could have said here, right? And God became flesh. And Jesus. But John goes back up to his introduction in verse 1, where he states it three times. The Word was. The Word was with. And the Word was God. He goes back and he says it again. The Word, Logos, became flesh. It's the very picture. very picture of the, the God that at some level was, well, not at some level. We're told. John tells us, right? John tells us a little later uh, in verse 18. No one has seen God at any time except now that we have Jesus. Jesus is seen. And, uh, and he explains God there in that verse. And so we see that uh, this is the divine communication uh, intended. In other words, God sent Jesus. Why? To communicate. Not just audibly. Not just in written form, right? Audibly, like Noah. Hey, Noah, it's going to flood. You know, build a boat, man. Get everything on board, man. The rains are coming, right? It's not the Ten Commandments that were written down and given and delivered to Moses. 
Now we have something altogether more visual. We can see Jesus. We can see Jesus' life. And so divine communication was intended, and it was directed not only, not only was it intended, but it was also directed at us. And the word, there's the intention of the communication, verse 14, became flesh, and what? And dwelt among us. So now we, not only do we have the picture of communication in the form of Jesus, but now we have the very presence of communication with you and with me. We can't miss it. There's no excuses for it. Jesus has come. He has come. This is John the Baptist's last testimony. Uh, look, at ver- look at chapter 3 with me, uh, verse 34. Uh, John the Baptist right, says here, For he... It's Jesus, whom God has sent, speaks the words of God. The theme of the word. For he gives the spirit without measure. The father loves the son and has given all things into his hand. But then he says, he who believes in him, the son has eternal life. But he who does not obey the son will not see life. See, so we see here, this is... The testimony of John the Baptist that John came, uh, Jesus came. And Jesus came to communicate. That's the divine communication intended. And he came to communicate to you and to me so that we will do something. That something is to believe. You could cross-reference that with John chapter 14 and verse 10. John chapter 17 and verse 8, you would see there the reality that Jesus is the word. What he speaks is God's word. And the divine intention is for you and for me to believe. And so, go back to verse 14 of chapter 1 with me. Now we see here that uh, we not only have the picture of communication, the word became flesh. We don't not only have the presence of communication and dwelt among us, but we have really the product here of communication, right? And the word became flesh, dwelt among us, and we saw his glory. Glory. So, what is the product? No one can see God. We already mentioned that, verse 18. And in verse 18, well, let's read that now. Verse 18, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten who is the bosom of the Father, that's Jesus, he has explained him. That's the Greek word literally for exegesis, for, to exegete him. Jesus is the one who pictures God's communication physically, in his life, in, in his ways, in his actions. He does so very much among us. And he does so, why? So that we can see his glory. So that Jesus can expound and explain the majesty of God. That's Jesus' role. To demonstrate to you and to me just how amazing God is. And you know, God's word does that, right? You can read the Old Testament, you can get, wow, God is an awesome God. He can part the Red Sea, right? He can can free his people from Egypt. He can do all these things. But my friends, is there a better way to communicate God's 
richest grace than by sending his only beloved son. Is there a better way to communicate that? You'd try to communicate that better than the way God did. How gracious is God? He gave us Jesus. Is there a better way to communicate God's love for you and for me? Than by sacrificing his only son on the cruel cross? How can you explain God's love better than that? Jesus explains the glory of God. He explains our wonderful, majestic God. Or how about our deep, desperate need for God's mercy? Can you explain that? Sure we can. We can go through scripture after scripture after scripture. But when we can tell people that our judgment has been reserved and our sins are forgiven because God has put his wrath on Jesus and Jesus has given us positive righteousness in, uh, in his place. You try to expound on the mercy of God outside of Jesus Christ better than that. My friends, I don't think we can. And so the picture that the word has become the flesh presence of him dwelling among us, the product that we can see his, uh, his and his father's glory are all reasons why we should believe Jesus' words. There's nothing else more worthy to follow, more right to obey, because they are the words of God. They are the very words of God, but they are also, secondly, Jesus' words, not only are of God, but they are of life. They are of life. We see that really here in the prologue, in the opening verses. In fact, uh, chapter 4 says, says as much. Jesus is the word of life. John will take that theme and run with it, just like he'll run with the, the theme of Jesus is the light. But you think about even prior to that, in the beginning, again, going back to the the. the the remnants of creation thinking in the beginning creation life and so you can see how this theme is really kind of tying together that Jesus's words are life and I want to submit to you that there's kind of a random interruption maybe we would at least think of it that way at the beginning right we got this grand uh, um, you know beginning of a prologue. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, right? And him was light, darkness, right? Boom, boom, boom. But then we get to verse 6, right? And there came a man. Wait, wait, we were talking about the Word. And John's going to go back. John's not done with the Word. We're going to go back to the Word. But in verse 6, we kind of get this random... Sorry, youth pastor coming out. There came a man sent from God, and it wasn't Jesus. Right? We would be okay. All right. We're, he's about to say, no, it was John, John the Baptist. And so, you know, there's power and contrast. And I think that's what John is doing here. John had a baptism of repentance. Jesus had a baptism from death, what? To life. Right? John's mission here in verse 6 and verse 7, we even see it in verse 7 and verse 8, right? He came as a witness to testify. In verse 8, he wasn't the light, but he came to what? 
testify of the light, right? John's mission was testimonial in nature. Jesus' mission is transformational in nature. Because Jesus' words give life. They give life. And so, uh, we see even that reality in, in verse 19. Right, where we start to get the formal testimony of John the Baptist, right? We're outside the prologue now. This is the testimony of John, right? And then we're going to read through it, right? And then in verse 34, we get really the summary of John the Baptist's testimony of Jesus. Here it is. I myself have seen and have testified that this is the Son of God. And within the context... A little bit before that, we were reading about new life. And we can even, if we remember, write the thesis statement for John in John chapter 20, verse 35, where John says, these things I have written to you, what? So that you believe, what? That Jesus is what? The Son of God. Why? So that you will... What's the Son? What, what does it have to do with believing that Jesus is the Son of God? That you will what? Have eternal Life. Jesus' words are life. They are life. They do not give life, John the Baptist's words. That's the contrast here. They do not give life, but they point to the person, the word who does. So the contrast teaches us. We also see that in verse 4 and 5, creation teaches us those things. We already kind of mentioned that, right? Light and life. Right? And light is almost synonymous with life. It certainly makes sense. We also see that in, in, in Jesus' ability throughout the gospel, as John records Jesus' ability to do, remember Pastor talked about, John doesn't use the word miracles, he calls them what? Signs. Jesus' ability to do signs is, is by its very nature a, a, uh, an expression of, that Jesus is above creation. That he is creator and he is above creation and he can do things supernatural. And so if he can do things supernatural, these are signs that Jesus can't just heal, but that he can what? Forgive our sins. He can give us life, his very words, our life. So we see that in creation. We see that in verse 12 of chapter 1, right? Where we have the right, if we believe in Jesus, to be what? Children of God. Children of God is synonymous with the reality that we have eternal life. Why? Because if we are children like God, we are going to live like God for eternity. That's the reality there. That's the, that's the, that's the implication. So we have the quality of eternal life if we are children of God. And so there's various other passages we could go to. We could look at chapter 5, verse 24. We could look at chapter 6, verse 68. Chapter 8, verse 51. You want to get these, they'll be in the notes later. Chapter 6, uh, I already said that. Uh, and, and on and on and on and on it goes. Because there's a distinct coupling with Jesus' words and the call to believe in him and therefore to have eternal life. Jesus' words give life. It's contained here in the prologue, and it is a constant theme throughout the rest of the book. Just like 
Jesus' words are God's words. It's contained here in the prologue, just, and it goes throughout the rest of the book, that theme. So that is the connection between the prologue and the rest of the book. Jesus' words are life. So we've seen that they're life. We've seen that Jesus' words are God's words. And finally this morning, we're going to see that Jesus' words demand belief. a little different because it brings judgment because they bring judgment look at verse 14 of the prologue with me and the word became flesh we got that dwelt among us we got that we saw his glory glory is the only begotten from the father so the father son and the glory son And then we have this statement, full of grace and truth. And it's a significant statement. It can be kind of Christianese, right? Full of grace and truth. You can kind of just skip by grace. We're so so in love with grace. We're so familiar with grace that sometimes we just skip over it. But you know what? He doesn't let us do that. In verse 16, he does that again. He says it again, that Jesus is, uh, for of his fullness we have all received, uh, excuse me, not verse 16, verse 17. For the law was given through Moses, and grace and truth, there it is again, were realized. Grace and truth realized through Jesus Christ. Well, how does this have to do with judgment, Pastor Steve? Well, glad you asked. All right, because we're going to look at that. Grace reveals that there is salvation from judgment, right? Given something we don't deserve, given eternal life. It's the twin of mercy, right? That judgment is withheld. But what is truth? How does Jesus realize truth? Jesus, I guess, it's easy for us to understand that Jesus realizes grace, yes, all the way to the cross. And how does Jesus realize truth? Well, of course, he speaks truth. No one's going to debate that. He is the truth. He says so much. But what's, what's the function? We get the function of, of Jesus' grace. He went to the cross. He gave us salvation. What's the function of truth? My friends, the function of truth is it draws a line in the sand. And on one side, it is true. And on the other side, it is untrue. It is false. Whatever word you want to use to describe. And take your Bibles and go to chapter 12 with me. And I think this will help us to understand how Jesus realizes or manifests the function of both grace and truth. Chapter 12, verse 44. And I want to point out a few things that we've observed in the prologue, and I'm trying to help us to get to observe really throughout John's Gospel. In fact, I'm going to pause here for a second to say uh, this would be a great time for you in the next couple of weeks to try to 
to try to get alone in a sitting or two or three, whatever it takes you, and try to read John's gospel. And I would encourage you, if you're like me, and some of you, most of you aren't, thank goodness, right? But if you are like me, uh, I have to do something with my hands or it doesn't really get to my brain very well. I'm sure there's some sort of diagnosis for that today, right? But I wasn't around when they gave all those cool diagnoses. But the, the reality is, I would, I would encourage you to take a couple highlighters or if you're like drawing pictures, have a, have a little key and, and read through God, God, John's gospel and, and try to highlight words that are repeated or make notes or symbols of, oh, this is, this is the emphasis of the written word or the spoken word or Jesus as the word. Or when Jesus says, truly, truly, I say unto you, that's, that's kind of unique in John's gospel. And, and it's repeated quite often, and it has something to do with Jesus' words as the word. And maybe you will see a theme, because if you start to highlight those, look very closely for the word believe. Because believe will oftentimes be very much present when, you're, when there's an emphasis on Jesus' words. In the truth, truly, truly, I say unto you, it's kind of coupled together. Amen, 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 right? And believe. They're coupled together. And so you could take that. There's a lot of other fun, uh, uh, repeated phrases and thoughts out there. Um, and so actually, I am doing something a little different this morning. I typically have my notes on my laptop, and I have my Bible, you know, just on as my notes on paper, right? Um, but I actually reversed it today, so I have to flub and kind of do the whole notes shuffle, right? Because I have more helpful highlights in my Bible that I didn't want to have to try to, in, in my, my Bible software, then, then it was just easier for me to, to do it this way today. Because as I've read through John, it's been a tremendous help to highlight. So I just encourage you to do that. I'm going I'm to show us now how in chapter 12, all right, we can see that Jesus' words are judgment and how some of these themes that we've recognized in the prologue that really kind of beam into the rest of the book, they shine into the rest of the book, are even here in this chapter, okay? It's just a great way to read scripture. It's like, anyway, the Holy Spirit is amazing, isn't he? And Jesus, here it is. This is a little, this is a little kind of asterisk where I have, right? This, is, this has everything to do with the word, Verse 1 of chapter 1. And Jesus, and by the way, this is kind of like in your face word, right? Don't you love how John kind of records this for us? And Jesus, what? Come on, get past it, Pastor Steve. He cried out! Jesus' word kind of, you can't miss it. You can't miss it. And said, he cried out, and in case you didn't miss it, and he said it, right? The word, the word. Here it is, right away, coupled together. He who, what? Believes. This is not a made-up theme. This is very much an amazing coupling together of the word and the call to believe. He who believes in me does not believe in me, but in him who sent me. Boy, that sounds like our first point, right? That the word, that Jesus as the word is what? God's word. Doesn't it? Verse 45. He who sees me the one who sent me. There it is again. Verse 46. This is chapter 12. I have come as light into the world. 
so that everyone who believes in me will not remain in darkness. Boy, that kind of sounds a little bit like the prologue, doesn't it? John has some really tight-knit themes throughout this book. And remember, we're now asking the question, we're here in chapter 12 trying to understand what is the function, how does Jesus reveal grace and truth? Remember that? That was a couple sentences ago. Right? How does Jesus reveal grace and truth? Well, here it is. Verse 47, if anyone hears my sayings, right? It's a, that's a neon signpost. This is the word, the word, the word, right? Here's my sayings. And does not keep them. That, by the way, is synonymous with belief. Keep, believe, obey. I do not judge him. For I did not come to the world to judge. But what? Save. To save. Boy, that sounds like the function of grace, doesn't it? Don't you think? Because everybody here just took a ginormously big breath and said, Thank goodness that the world came not to ju- that the word came not to judge the world, right? You and I are beneficiaries of that reality. Jesus realized grace. Right? But we're not done, are we? The answer is no. Verse 48. He who rejects me and does not receive I'm going to substitute how I have it highlighted. The capital word. One, chapter 1, verse 1. He who rejects me and does not receive my sayings has one who judges him. Okay, Jesus, we've realized grace through you, right? But how do we also realize truth? And the reality is, if there is a line in the sand and truth is on one side and error is on the other. The reality is, is that the word, verse 48, I spoke is what will judge him at the last day. And we know later on in Revelation, Jesus is the primary agent of judgment. So yes, Jesus realizes full of grace and truth. Yes, Jesus realizes grace. And thank goodness he does. But my friends, there will come a time that he realizes Judgment. Truth reveals judgment for those who reject. That's really the, the, the reality here in verse 12. Jesus' words are not just any words. They are truth. They are reality. They dictate the way of the universe and life itself. There's teeth to Jesus' words, and they cannot be ignored, my friends. In fact, Jesus says in chapter 8, verse 44, that those who refuse to hear, refuse to hear his words belong to the devil. In chapter uh, 14, again, I said uh, that belief in keeping God's word or Jesus' word is, is synonymous together. So there's, there's a call to be rightly aligned with the revelation of truth. It's been observed, in conclusion, that the prologue may have a chiastic, chiastic structure. So chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. You know what a chiasm, a chiasm is? It is essentially where the author is, is writing from the beginning and from the end, and he's, he's bringing the main point right into the middle. And so if that were the case, some have suggested that verse 12, 
you can tell we've made much of verse 12 of the prologue, would be the key message or where John is trying to arrive. But as many as received him, the word, it's not Jesus yet, right? He doesn't give the name until verse 17. It's the word right now. To as many as received the word, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who, what? Believe. This was John's intended structure. certainly seems to correspond to his stated thesis for the gospel in John chapter 20, verse 31, right? We already said that. These are written so that you would believe, right? That Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may what? Have life in his name. It is clear that John presents Jesus as the very word of God so that we believe in him. Jesus' words demand believing in him. So it's right today to orbit your whole life around Jesus and around his word, guys. It is right, beloved. Christian, child of God, child of light, it is right to be distinct and to follow God's word, no matter the cost. It is right. It is right. It is good today to arrange your schedules, your activities, your plans, your affections. Your music, all your entertainment, everything. It is good to arrange everything according to the priority set forth in His Word. It is an appropriate, good thing to do. Sometimes it's even appropriate to say no to things, even good things, so that we may obey and keep God's Word. Because that is a mark, a hallmark of believing in His Word, in the Word. You know, all of us have our own need to grow in believing in Him. You know, the synoptics record uh, James and John and who's the greatest. And and up in the upper room, they, they fight in the synoptics as well. Again, who's the greatest among them? But in John, uh, chapter 13, the, the corresponding, where, where it would be Thursday uh, evening and in the on the road to the crucifixion, the Last Supper. John doesn't record that. What does he record? He doesn't record the fighting of them being the greatest. He records the word living. The question, who is the greatest? And how does Jesus answer that? He doesn't say, come to me, you servants, and wash my feet. What does he say? He doesn't even just say it. He does it. He washes the disciples' feet. He shows what is the true disposition of a Christ follower by humbling himself. That was a dirty, lowly servant job, and Jesus did it. He shows us how to grow in our belief. You know, Peter, at the end of the book, John chapter 21, right? He's, he, prior to that, he's denied Jesus three times. And so the Apostle Peter, John records, he threw in the towel, and he went fishing. Went back to the old hat, right? Something comfortable. And it just so happens that Peter didn't catch a fish. (laughs) Some fisherman he was, right? Well, when Jesus doesn't want you to catch a fish, you ain't catching a fish, buddy. (laughs) What What does John record for us? A tender reunification. A tender restoration of someone who believed in Jesus but had a moment of failure. Right? 
So my friends, we all have ways where we can grow in our belief. This morning, maybe some of you are like Pilate, who in, uh, in John, oh, I'm blanking here, but uh, we'll find that chapter later, where Jesus, before Pilate, says, everyone who is of the truth hears my voice, right? And what does Pilate say? What is truth? So some of us here this morning, we may be asking the question, what is truth? Can I really believe that you are the truth, that you are the word? And my friends, John's whole point is Yes, you can. Yes, you can. Jesus' words are God's words. Jesus' words are life. And Jesus' words will ultimately judge what is true. Father, we do pray that you would help us this morning to recognize in our own lives what are we doing with the truth, with the word. No doubt there's distractions like the disciples in the upper room who are arguing about who's the greatest. No doubt there's times of failure like Peter when he flat out rejected you and didn't do it once, not even twice, he did it three times. Oh, but it goes to show us that there's, there's room for distraction and failure in the Christian life. But those who truly believe in the word, who orient their lives that way, they won't stay there. They'll be restored. They'll be focused. We have the ability, because your words are God's words. We have the ability because your words are life. Even being right on the side of truth. So we pray that you'd help us in Jesus' name to believe.